So this is now the fifth year after Hijrah in terms of the Prophet Muhammad's prophethood timeline. We are talking approximately 14 to 15 years of his prophethood. So if Muhammad received his prophethood at the age of 42, you can imagine now that he's basically getting up towards close to 60 now. Okay. So, so we have surpassed the, the major battle. So Battle of Badr has happened. Okay, and the Battle of Badr was the first major defensive war. Battle of Uhud was the second attack, which is the second defensive war. Then the Battle of Trenches is when Quraysh were unsuccessful in the first two attempts. Then the Jews joined up. After the one single enemy failed to destroy the Muslims, by all means, use your own imagination, right, in today's affairs. The one enemy that was unable to defeat the Muslims then goes to the world to get back up. Okay? So in this case, the Jews who used to live in Medina and then got kicked out of Medina because they broke their pact under the state of Islam and committed an act of treason, could not take this and wanted the full destruction of the Muslims. So they funded a war pushing the main enemy alongside every other tribe, as many tribes as they can get in the area of Arabia to destroy this one little town in Medina. So if you just imagine the core of it was the Quraysh, so the Jews instigated and motivated the Quraysh, as well as the Ghatafan tribe and any other sub-tribe that can join. So the Muslims, who were still poor, didn't have anything, as you can see in some countries now, they don't have anything. But what they do have is heart, and what they do have is mainly Islam, and they have Allah behind them, okay? So even within their own town, they have traitors. So when the Muslims went forward to fight in the Battle of the Trenches, 900 that stood forward to fight, a good 600 were hypocrites, and or let's say a good 300 were hypocrites, and the remaining were the Muslims who wavered because they lost heart. And only the strong stayed, and that was a 300 of them, roughly, against how many? against 10,000. That's pretty much the world against a very small Muslim group of people who are going to defend Islam. Okay? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminded these Muslims and he said that Allah provides support where you can't even see it. When something has control of every atom, every molecule, every proton in this universe, you're telling me that force cannot combine or use anything he wants to make something happen. That's the kind of level of trust that Allah expects you to have in him. You'll never get the things that you want. You'll never overcome your challenges unless you at some point believe that this force is in control and you put your full trust in that force. That's the key thing. And now on paper, this is easy, right? I can explain this. The hardest bit is actually believing it. And the way you know if you believe it or not is when you actually come into that situation, do you actually can let go of the world and put your trust in God? Do you run around in this dunya looking for help, for material help, looking for people to help you, getting people to bail you out, 
Or do you stop for a minute and think to yourself exactly what the Prophet did at the Battle of Badr when he was completely outnumbered, 314 against 1,000? Did he run back to Medina? Did he go to all the tribes and say, can you join us? Can you give us some weapons? Did he do any last minute work like this? No, he just raised up his hands and he made a dua to Allah. Because he knew the only thing that can help him is Allah. And Allah said in the Quran, remember any message in the Quran is a direct message to the Prophet Muhammad But through him, it is an example all the way through till the day of judgment. So when Allah says, I will provide you help. If you put your confidence, if you put your trust in me, I will bring support. I will help you. You understand? And that's the whole ethos of this. So when Muhammad was faced against 10,000, those 10,000 couldn't even touch the Muslims. Allah SWT destroyed and weakened them before they could even attack by bringing one individual from the enemy camp who himself became Muslim out of the many years of da'wah being done. The Prophet didn't know who this man was. The Sahabi didn't know who he was. He just heard about Islam. He was in the enemy territory, like it could have been a, a Jew in, from the Israel camp or it could have been you know, a, a, an American you know, from the American army. He learned about Islam and he's convinced that is the truth. No one knew about his conversion. And then when everything looked like it was going to be done, the Prophet was going to lose his fight. This man turns up and he says to Prophet Muhammad my name is Naim and I have become Muslim. Ask me of anything, I'm at your service. And through this man, he created a dissension. He created this disunity between all three of these camps, between the Quraysh, the Ghatafan and the Jews, who supposedly trusted each other and he created doubt amongst each other and they all fled because they lost trust. So Allah says, I will bring you support where you won't even think about it. You don't have no idea that it exists. And that's the key thing. After this war, that's when the Prophet Muhammad said, from this day onwards, nobody will come to attack us. We will now go for them. That's it. So the ties have turned. This was the point where now Islam and the Prophet Muhammad by the permission of Allah, can now do what we call offensive da'wah. Now, offensive da'wah or offensive jihad is of particular ways. And we're going to cover one story that will explain this. So, after this event, the Prophet Muhammad is being continuously bombarded by different groups trying it on, trying to weaken him. So, he has scouts moving in and out, listening to events and what's going on. In this particular case, there was news that came back to Prophet Muhammad He's in Medina. And he's were told that there is a tribe of the Banu Mustalik, right? A big tribe, a very powerful tribe that is preparing an army. And they're somewhere south towards the coast, okay, in a town very close to Jeddah. And they were preparing themselves to attack the Prophet Muhammad. So the Prophet Muhammad immediately called the Adhan like he always would do. When the Adhan is called, all the Muslims assemble and he ordered the Muslims, prepare yourself, we are now going to attack this group before they cause damage to us. Okay, And that's the way to do it. You disable any attempt of anyone trying to attack you first. And that's a natural process of war in itself. So what did Muhammad do? So he made this journey to this area called Al-Muraisi. When he arrived there, he saw the massive army that was prepared. When Muhammad arrived, the army saw that the Prophet Muhammad had come with his massive army of the Muslims. So before the attack happened, 
the Prophet Muhammad ordered Hazrat Umar. He said, before we attack, go and invite them to Islam. So Hazrat Umar went forward, called upon them, and he said, we will release you, we will not attack you. Yeah, Your life and your property will belong to you if you just take the Shahada. But they responded in a very harsh manner with firing arrows at the Muslims. So the war began and eventually they lost heart, the, the Banu Mustalik, okay? Now the Banu Mustalik was run by a man by the name of Al-Harith and he was the leader of this particular tribe. So Al-Harith bin Abu Dar. Why Al-Harith bin Abu Dar is very famous? Because he is the father of Hazrat Juwairiya radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet Muhammad and this is how these two had met as well. So when Muhammad attacked and they ran, they had captured many of the women, the cattle, children, and any of the men. In that process, one Muslim man was killed. And it was killed by accident. In warfare, it happens. An arrow can be misfired, it can go and it can end up killing one of your own. And the state, the Islamic state, will deal with this by giving blood money. So a man by the name of Hisham bin Sobaba was killed accidentally. He was a Muslim and he got killed accidentally by a Muslim. Okay, Hisham was actually from Makkah. He had a brother by the name of Mikyas. Now Mikyas came from Makkah after hearing that his brother had been killed on a misfire by the Muslims, pretended to be Muslim, came into Medina and said to the Prophet Muhammad you owe me blood money for my brother and the state owes blood money. So they gave him huge amounts of funds. So Mikyas decided after receiving the funds to stay in Medina and seek out the person who accidentally killed his brother. And he struck and murdered that Muslim. And then he escaped and he apostated. So the question is, did he really convert? Not, well, clearly he didn't. He pretended he was Muslim, took the money and then committed murder, right? And this is not even the Islamic, this was the rules that generally existed even amongst the Arabs. Later on, when we, took, when we go to the story of Fatah Makkah, when the Prophet ﷺ conquered Makkah, when they captured all the people who were trying to fight the Muslims, everyone was released except for four people were ordered to be executed in Fatah Makkah. And I want to go through the details of that. And Mikyas was one of them. He was one of them was ordered. Why? Because he killed a Muslim in cold blood, murder, after accepting the blood money, right? And with the apostate, right? Now, this is the problem, right? So this is where people will turn around the, and, and the Jews, the Christians, and the non-Muslims will always attack you. So keep this in mind. You say you murder apostates. No, we don't. There are many apostates during the time of Prophet Muhammad who were Muslims, left Islam, and then came back to Islam. The doors are open. The doors are open. The apostates that got killed or executed were the ones who committed a very serious crime that was deemed to have an execution associated as a punishment for the act that they've committed, like an act of treason. Anywhere in the world today, it's execution, right? It's a death penalty. Same with if you murder, right? In some states in America, they will execute you. So there's nothing different here. So this is why I always say it's very important to understand the seerah understand these stories so that when they attack you, you can ask them, bring me the story, bring me the event, because many of these are context 
that are missing. So Mikyas went and he fled. Okay, so Muhammad would deal with him later on. Whilst they were in this area, they were by a well. So the fight is over. They've now captured everyone. And now in this process, Hazrat Umar, he has a hired man from Makkah. And his name is Jahja bin Masood. This man was a hired man by, uh, by Hazrat Umar. They were by the well. Okay. And as they were all sitting around the well, they're eating and they're drinking, right? Because the battle's over now. This man, Jahja, has a clash by this other a man of the Khazraj from the Medina. You know, so he's a, this man is by the name of Sinan bin Wahabi, right? He is from the land of Medina. He's part of the Khazraj tribe. So these two have a clash. They had, something happened. They got in each other's way. They might have been very groggy or something happened. And they started to argue and they started to fight. Okay. As a result of that, this man, Sinan bin Wabi, started calling on all the Khazraj. People, come here, come here. This man's trying to start a fight with me. These are Muslims now. These are Muslims now. And so then Jahja then called upon the, the Mahajirun, the, the Muslims from, from Makkah. And they come along finding out what's going on. And things started to kick off a little bit. In this army was the hypocrite known as Abdullah bin Ubay. They used to call him the master and the king of the hypocrites. Okay, And we'll talk about his story in a second. Abdullah bin Ubay. When he sees all of this, he's dying to create problems now for the Prophet Muhammad So he comes along with a group of other people from the Ansar, okay? Because some of the Ansar are a little bit supportive of him. They don't see the bad side of him because he's one of theirs. But the Mahajirun, they know very clearly of this character. And some of the Ansar do, but he has some support. Alongside Abdullah bin Abay, when he comes to the well, with his arguments kicking off, he comes with a young boy by the name of Zayb bin Arqam. So he's along with this camp and he sees what goes on. So this is the response of Abdullah bin Abay and he shouts out to everyone. He says, did they really cause this problem? They challenge us and outnumber us in our lands. These Mahajirun, they come to our land and they outnumber us. I swear by God, the old saying well applies to us that these Quraysh ruffians fatten your dog and you will eat it. So these Quraysh who've come here, they're basically going to feed us and then they're going to get rid of us. They're going to take over our town and they're going to kill us eventually. I swear when we return to Medina, what he's saying now, he makes a threat. He says, I swear when we return to Medina, the stronger will drive out the weaker. And he started to rare up all, everybody else. Now, Zaybin Arkham, this boy, he hears this, goes back to the Prophet Muhammad and tells him of what's happened. So, as he goes back to tell him, one of the men, Umar bin Al-Khattab, says to the Prophet Muhammad get this man by the name of Abad bin Bishar and get him to kill Abdullah bin Abay. Kill him. He's creating fitna, we don't need him. And you know he's a hypocrite. Now this is the response of the Prophet Muhammad He said, how would it be, Umar, if people would say that Muhammad kills his own companions? You see, at this stage, even though he's a hypocrite, you have to judge him by faith value. He says, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. You have to accept that. You don't know what's in the heart. If we went around like this, if we judge people by their actions, we would end up killing half the Muslims. We know that while the doors of Tawbah open, even the hypocrites 
became good Muslims eventually. They went through this period of hypocrisy. Some never do, right? When the Prophet Muhammad when he was in Makkah, he made a dua to Allah that give me one of the two Umars, meaning to become Muslim. One of them was Abu Jahl, because his name was Umar, and the other one's Umri Khattab. Now Abu Jahl, he was venomously against the Prophet Muhammad He was a political leader and he created massive campaigns against the Prophet Umar bin Khattab wasn't a political man, but he went out to assassinate the Prophet Muhammad So both were equally bad in that sense. Why did Prophet make a dua? Because it doesn't matter how bad you are, there's always a chance that you can come towards a deed. Agreed? So therefore, when you see Muslims on the streets and they could be really jahil, you don't know. Give them time. Maybe Allah will warm their hearts up. But you're not judge and jury. You have to wait until the day judgment happens and then let Allah decide. Here's a lesson that, uh, that Prophet is teaching Umar. The Umar, what will people say? What kind of leader am I? This man doesn't spare non-Muslims and he's killing his own people. So hey, Muhammad was very, very clever in this. And so he said to Umar, tell the people, pack your bags, we're moving, we're going out now. Because it got into such a bad argument, such a bad fight, they started drawing swords out, they were going to kill each other. This is how bad it was. So in the middle of the day, now, when you're an army in Arabia back in them days, when you travel, you travel in the evenings when it's cooler. And it's in the day that you sleep. Is that? In the day you can't travel, you, you'll have all sorts of problems. So Muhammad switched it over and he said, we will travel now in the heat. And I'll explain to you why he done that. So, Zayb bin Arqam, when he had reported this to the Prophet Muhammad Abdullah bin Abay heard about this and he started to panic. So he came to see the Prophet Muhammad and he said, Oh Messenger of Allah, I heard that you've heard this about me. This is incorrect. This is not what I said. He lied blatantly. And some of the other Ansar that they were there, good Muslims, who didn't know the real character of Abdullah bin Abay at the time, they said, maybe this young boy, Zaid, maybe he misunderstood, or he didn't understand the words that were being said while they were arguing, or he didn't memorize what was heard, and therefore it's come out wrong. So the Prophet Muhammad left it at that. As they were riding back now, the Prophet Muhammad ran into one of the Sahabi from Medina, Usay bin Hudair. So Usayd bin Hudair was quite shocked actually. He was like, why is the army moving at like 12 o'clock midday? It's boiling hot. It's like nearly 48 degrees. What's going on here? And the Prophet Muhammad said to Usayd bin Hudair, he said, did you not hear what your friend had said? He said, no, I didn't hear anything. He said, your friend said, when we get to Medina, that the stronger will drive out the weaker. And Usay bin Hudair, who was also like, look, he was his Abdullah bin Abay's friend as well. He said to the Prophet, we're trying to make an excuse for him. He said, look, I swear by Allah, we know that you will drive him out whenever you want. And we know that you are the stronger. Okay. But Ya Rasul, and this is his background story. He said, but take it easy on him. Because before you arrived to Medina, the day you were arriving, the people of Medina were stringing the pearls to make his throne. He was going to be elected the leader until you showed up. So obviously a man's ego is hurt. So he was going to be elected after the people, there was a massive big war that happened in Medina. Many of the leaders got killed. And so the, whoever was left over elected him as to be the leader. But the youngsters, the youngsters in Medina, who had already given Bayyid to the Prophet when they brought him in, 
everyone then turned around and gave the leadership to the Prophet So this busted up his ego quite badly and he didn't like it. So ever since then he had this in his heart that I will deal with you. I will work with the Jews. I will work with the Quraysh and I'll do my best to get you out. Usay bin Hudayr was saying, look, his ego's hurt a little bit. Take it easy on him. He's still a little bit bitter and sore. When they arrive quite close towards Medina or they, or, they, or they go towards Hijaz, that's when they stop and they rest. And look how Prophet Sallallahu done. By the time these Muslims who are ready to fight each other, when they arrived in this place of Hijaz, the moment they, they dropped their bags, they fell asleep. The Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu they always say, you know, if you've got a fight or you're bickering, you just need to give yourself 24 hours to calm down, reassess your situation, understand, okay, we behave badly. A thing can escalate because if you let it escalate, words will be said. And it won't be, the argument will not be based on the first incident, it will be based on the last few of what you just said. And it will carry on like this. That's why the Prophet said, if I make them walk, carry all their things, it will be so hot, they won't be able to talk, they'll be too tired while they're moving things out. By the time we got to Hijaz, they were absolutely knackered. They were exhausted. And they put their stuff down and they fell asleep. By the time they woke up, they didn't think about the problem at all. That is a sign of a good leader. This is how Muhammad had taught these Muslims to behave in a particular way. During that time when the Prophet was going back, the wind was blowing very hard. And it was a very unusual kind of wind, like it, it's almost like hurricane level wind. And the Sahabi became quite scared. What was this? And the Prophet Muhammad, this wind, the Jibreel had told him that this wind is a sign of one of the Jews of the Banu Qaynuqa who has just died. And this Jew by the name of Rifa bin Zaid bin Thabit, he was one of the culprits, one of the people that used to work with the other Jews and the Quraysh and the hypocrites to try to weaken the Muslims. And Allah got rid of him from this dunya. So taking him away was a big blow for the Jews, right? And for the, uh, for the hypocrites. Abdullah bin Ubay, the hypocrite, had a son by the name of Abdullah. And his son Abdullah, and was a very, very, very sincere Muslim. He was young. He heard about the event that happened about his father. And people were talking about the fact your father causes fitna, etc, etc. So there was a little bit chatting going on. So as a concerned son, he came to the Prophet Muhammad And he said to the Prophet Muhammad I heard that you wanted to kill my father. That you have been informed about this fitna that he has created. If this is your decision, then I ask you, Messenger of Allah, give me the permission to kill my own father. Okay? The reason why, because I swear that if the Khazraj are more loyal to my father than me, then I fear that someone other than myself, if they kill him, they, under your order, they kill him, I will not be able to walk around in Medina knowing that this person had killed my father and I don't want to act in a bad reaction and commit haram and kill that person. So it's best you let me do it. Let me finish my father off. And this was his response. The Prophet Muhammad after hearing this, he said, on the contrary, we will treat him kindly and we will enjoy his company so long as he stays with us. This is the Prophet He wanted to calm the sun down. And said, don't worry, no one's going to touch him. Yeah? Whatever mistake he's made, he's made. But until then, he's a Muslim, he's amongst us, and we will treat him and we'll enjoy his company. 
when they went back to Medina, news got out. And when the Ansar, the people of Medina who were supporters of Abdullah bin Abay, when they heard about what he had done, they were ready to kill him themselves. And the Prophet Muhammad looked at Hazrat Umar and he said to Umar, Umar, so what do you think now? If I had killed him that day, then there would have been resentment for a very long time about what I did. Now if I give the order, they're ready to kill him himself, right? They'll do it themselves. There's no issue, which we're not going to do. But if you have a bit of sabr and a bit of patience and let Allah unfold everything, this is a sign of good leadership. So this is very, very important how this was done. Abdullah, the son of Abdullah bin Abay, when they arrived into Medina, he stood on the entrance of Medina. And as people were going through, his father came in a camel. He took his sword out and put the sword out to his father's neck. He goes, you will not enter this city unless the Prophet Muhammad gives you permission after what you've done. See, he was very against what his father has done. And then the Prophet heard about this and he said to Abdullah, let your father in into the town. But this is the dedication towards Allah and his messenger. That knowing when something is wrong, regardless whether your blood, regardless with your blood, you have to uphold the haq, the truth. Right? Regardless of whatever happens, you cannot let any of this just kind of like fall out. You have to be able to stand up regardless of you. So if you have mates, you have friends and they're committing haram, you've got to be able to stand up and say this is wrong. You've got to be willing to break your friendship. You've got to be willing to walk away. You can guide them, but you cannot stand there and be a witness to what they do. You cannot support it. You cannot be a witness of that. So this is very important uh, and how this shows this. Now, in the same event that occurred, the people that were captured, so we now we just kind of go back in the event where they, when, this, when the raid happened on Banu Mustalik. When they captured the women and the children, okay, and so some of the men, about 10 of them were killed and they captured all the others. Now, in that, there was a woman who was the daughter of Al-Harith, the leader. And her name was Juwiriya, okay, Juwiriya radiya anha, that is the wife of the Prophet Muhammad She was young and she was beautiful. Now, Hazrat Aisha was there on the trip, okay, and we'll explain why Hazrat Aisha was there. So Hazrat Aisha was narrating this hadith. She said that Prophet Muhammad was distributing all of the booty. So what happens is women, children, they will go to the soldiers, etc., the camels, etc., it will be all distributed equally. Now, Juwiriya was handed over to Hazrat Thabit bin Qais. And what Juwiriya did, she's very smart, as she was handed over, she, started, she wanted to write a contract to say that over a period of time, when you pay me for my work, because slaves under the law of Islam will get paid, I'm allowed to buy my freedom. Okay? So she approaches, Hazrat Aisha said that she came to see the Prophet Muhammad And Hazrat Aisha narrated, when I saw her, immediately I hated her. I knew, look how beautiful this girl is. And I hated her even more because she's going to come and see my husband. And I knew that if my husband saw what I saw, he's going to want to marry this girl. But the Prophet didn't do it for that reason. And I'll explain why. When Juwiriya walked in, she said to the Prophet Muhammad I'm the daughter of Al-Harith, the leader of this tribe. He said, okay, and what can I do for you? He said, I want you to help me write a contract. You handed me over to Thabit bin Qais. I want you to help me write a contract that states that when I get paid or over a certain period, this is the money that I can pay him to buy my freedom. 
He says, can I offer you something better? And he said, she said, what was that? He said, I will offer you hand in marriage. She jumped at it. Hazrat Aisha was <laughs> obviously <laughs> a bit destroyed. But Jubairi jumped at it. And I'll explain why. The moment that the Prophet Muhammad made the proposal for marriage, every Sahabi that had taken the prisoner released their prisoners, gave them freedom because they were all related to Juaria. So as a result of that, everyone that was given as booty was now free and all their goods were returned back and they became Muslim. Hazrat Juaria narrated in a hadith, right? She said, three nights before the Prophet Muhammad turned up, I had a dream. In that dream, I kept on seeing a moon come from Yathrib, Medina, and it kept on falling in my lap. So three nights in a row she had this dream. And this dream, I had a good feeling about this dream. So when the Prophet Muhammad arrived in Al-Muraisi, and then the fight happened, and then he offered, I knew straight away that this is my dream. That this is nothing but something good that's going to happen for us. And the good was that we got captured, I married him, I followed Islam, I was blessed by following Islam, and my whole tribe became Muslim. You see, many of the Prophet's marriages was, and there's a, there, we talked about this ayah last week when we talked about the Prophet's marriage to Umm Habiba, the daughter of Abu Sufyan. That Allah said in the Quran before this marriage, He goes, Sometimes Allah will bring you close in marriages so that He can bring communities, bring your enemies closer to you. Abu Sufyan was the enemy of the Prophet. Little did he know that his daughter was going to marry Muhammad. And when she did marry him, Abu Sufyan, even though he was the enemy, felt very proud that his daughter married one of the most honorable individuals. And that was the bit that softened his heart to the eventuality of him becoming Muslim. The story doesn't stop there now. So after this marriage, uh, so you know, the proposal happens. On the journey back now begins the story which every one of you should know because this story is what is used by the West to attack the Muslims in regards to the event of Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha. This story is referred to as the Qisat al-Ifaq. What this means is, is the calumnies or the rumors against Hazrat Aisha. And this is the Hazrat Aisha's narration. Right? I'll paraphrase the whole story. Hazrat Aisha says, whenever the Prophet Muhammad makes a trip, he casts lots, like, you know, pick the shortest straw, the longest straw, whatever you want, to all the wives. And Hazrat Aisha goes, I won. So I now accompany my husband on the journey. Okay, sometimes it's Umm Salama, sometimes Hazrat Aisha, sometimes another wife. So Aisha was with the Prophet Muhammad on this journey to Muraisi, right, to attack the Banu Mustalik. She said, on the journey back, we stopped by, and I had to relieve myself. And what she was describing was, generally when women travel, we have to eat very light. We're not allowed to eat meat. And the reason why is because we travel in howdens. You know, the, you know the, in the olden days uh, when they used to carry the women in, the, uh, in these little tents and the men used to carry it in their shoulders. That's called a howden. So the men would lift it up, put it on top of the camel. When this story happened, hijab was already made fard now because we talked about last week, hijab came down, the ruling on hijab. When, the, when he got married to Hazrat Zainab bin Jaish. Now, she said that when we stopped by, I came out, I had to relieve myself. So she went quite far away from the camp. The camp had stopped. After finishing, as I started to walk back, I was given this beautiful necklace, a Yemeni's necklace. 
as I started walking back, I got to the Howden, the people saw me go in. That's when I checked and I realized my necklace had fallen. So I jumped out and I went back and I found it. When I found it, I came back and at distance, everybody was gone. Right? All seven, 800 people had already moved on because I was taking so long finding it. So I was very worried and concerned. Obviously, the men that were carrying the howden, they had no idea because she was so light. When they picked her up, they, they thought that she was in there, put it on the camel, and then they went. She said, I came back to that place. I put a cloak on myself and I laid down thinking that eventually they'll realize that I'm missing and they'll come back to the place where they'll find me. As I was waiting, a Sahabi by the name of uh, Safwan bin Al-Mu'attal. Safwan bin Mu'attal, for some reason, also got delayed. He was already a day late. What usually happens is when you travel, everyone brings their own uh, transport. And some camels, we talked about Jabri bin Abdullah, when he had a camel, his camel was very slow. Do you remember? You can only take what you can afford, right? So there could have been a reason that he was way behind. As he was coming with his camel, he noticed that there was somebody there. Now, obviously, he knows what Hazrat Aisha looks like, but she's got the full hijab on. So he came, comes there and he sees her there. And then he recognizes that this is Aisha. How did this happen? But she didn't speak because she was at Parda. So he bought the camel. Camel lowered itself down. Obviously, he told Hazrat Aisha to mount the camel and he kept his distance. She says he kept, he kept his distance from me. And we went all the way back to Medina. Okay. When we arrived in Medina, people could see me and Safwan coming in. And the rumor started, what is she doing with him? And it could be many reasons. Mom just got married to Jeweria. Was she this? Was she that? They could make all this nonsense up. She wasn't aware. She went straight home. She said, when I got home, the next day, literally, I got sick. Very sick. I could not even leave the house. By this time, rumors started going round and round and round about these two. They came back alone and people started talking, etc., etc. It got to a point that she said, my mother was coming, nursing me, looking after me and so forth. And my mother knew, but she didn't say a single word to me. She didn't say, by the way, Aisha, people are talking. This is what's going on. And so this started to distress the Prophet Muhammad people talking. She said, I began to notice when every time he came into the house and to see how I was, he would very, in a very cold manner, he would say, how are you? And I would say, I'm, uh, message of Allah, I'm feeling slightly better. But he wouldn't say anything else. So this upset me. So I said to the, my husband, do you mind if I go to my mum's and stay with her for a little while? So he said, no problem, you go. Hazrat Aisha said, I stayed at my mother's house, yeah, and my father's, Abu Bakr Sadiq, radiallahu anhu. So she stayed there. She said, one night, I wanted to relieve myself, and I was with one of the local Ansari women, yeah, uh, Umm Mista, okay. As we were walking, because she, she accompanies me, and I was walking, she slipped and fell. And as she fell, she cursed her son. Her son is named Mr. Her son was at Battle of Badr. Aisha was like, hang on a minute. That's a bit rude. Mr. He was your son. And top of that, he was, he was at the Battle of Badr. And she says, love, did. Have you not heard? She said, heard what? That there's rumors about you. That they're talking about you and this man, Safwan. And, you know, and all the potential things that have been said. She said, the moment I heard this, 
I could not even go to the bathroom. I was so upset. I went home and I was in tears. And I confronted my mother and I said to my mother, you knew about this. Why didn't you tell me? My mother responded back and said, love, listen to me. The Prophet Muhammad your husband has many wives and you're the youngest and you're the beautiful. Obviously, people are going to say things. People are going to say things. Now, the rumor began, the people, there was about four people that were involved in that rumor making, right? One was, of course, Abdullah bin Abay. He would love to take this opportunity to stir this up. The other one was Hazrat Mista. Okay, now not deliberately. It wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't trying to be vicious. You know, when rumors come out and you say, you know, I heard this and this, 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 and then you tell another person, but you're not trying to be vicious. It's just your own stupidity. You don't realize the damage you're creating. Some of the Khazraj tribe members, and probably the most shocking, was Hamna. And you're looking at me thinking, who's Hamna? Hamna is the sister of. Zainab bin Jaish, the, the cousin of the Prophet Muhammad the, the one who got married to Prophet under the order of Allah in the Quran. Zainab had a sister by the name of Hamna who was living with them. And because people thought Zainab was in competition with Hazrat Aisha, there's no competition with these two. They're the most beloved to Allah and they're the most, the most pious. Right? But you know why? Because these two marriages, out of all the marriages of the Prophet Muhammad these two were ordered by Allah. The others were the choosing of the Prophet Muhammad So remember that. Hazrat Zainab bin Jaish and Hazrat Aisha were ordered by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Hamna wanted to get a little bit of an edge for her sister and thought, if I could spread this rumor, then she gets the favoritism. She gets the title at the top. And Hazrat Aisha says, Zainab has never said a single bad word about me, ever. She was not involved in this. So the Prophet Muhammad he does a khutbah. He gets so distressed about this situation that he says to the people, why is it that people are giving me concern? Why are people making me worried about these rumors, these untruths? I swear by Allah, I know nothing but good of these two. My wife and this man by the name of Aswade. Now, this man hasn't even entered my house ever. He hasn't even been known to be, behave this way. So why are people making these rumors? What happened was the Sahabi gathered around the Prophet ﷺ and they were concerned. So they said to him, one of the Sahabi, uh, it was actually Usay bin Hudair who said to the Prophet ﷺ, Now remember the, the Medina tribe is Khazraj and Aus, the two tribes who become Muslim. Usay ibn Hudair is one of the leaders of the Aus tribe and they know that Khazraj people are the ones making the rumors. So Hudair, who is the leader of the Aus, says to the Prophet Muhammad Ya Rasul, we see the concern on your face. If it's one of our men, we'll take care of it for you. Don't worry. We'll deal with it. We'll, we'll, we'll squash it. But if it's one of the Khazraj, we'll kill him. Then Saad bin Ubadah, he was standing there. He said, the only reason why you said that, because you know it's from our tribe. And had you known it, if you, if you knew it was from your tribe, you would never have said what you said. When you kill your own first. And then they started to bicker. The Prophet ﷺ walked off. He was too distressed. With him comes Hazrat Ali and Osama bin Zayd. 
And he says to Osama bin Zayd, you know, they're very close to the Prophet Muhammad Osama bin Zayd says to the Prophet Muhammad he says, Ya Rasul, you know nothing but good of Aisha. These are silly rumors. Let them go. They'll die out. Hazrat Ali, very blunt, very harsh. He said to the Prophet there are many other women out there. So if you're not comfortable, you can go marry again. No issue. Then the Prophet Muhammad goes in and now he has a conversation with Hazrat Aisha. When he's having this conversation with Hazrat Aisha, it's a quite a harsh. She, he walks in and Aisha is crying. She is crying because all these rumours and her husband is kind of doubting the situation. So the Prophet Muhammad says to her, he said, Aisha, you have been informed what people have been saying about you. Fear Allah. It's if you have been wrong, if you indeed done wrong, then just say that you repent to Allah. God accepts repentance from his servants. Hazrat Aisha says, I was crying. The moment he said that, my, my eyes stopped. I'm not crying no more. How dare you say this? What is this? So she turned around and she said, the moment he said this to me, I knew that Allah will declare me. Right? I will not ask for repentance because I've done nothing wrong. And if I ask for repentance, it will only prove to everybody else that I did do something wrong. No, I will wait. I will wait until Allah declares my name. So the Prophet Muhammad Sallam, as he, as he sat there and, and they were having this conversation and he kept on saying these things to Aisha, Hazrat Aisha looked at her mother. Mother said nothing. She looked at her father, Abu Bakr, he said nothing. You're my mother and my father. Why don't you speak up? They said, dear, what can we say? What can we say? Then at that very moment, this is how they know that Hazrat Aisha said, and I knew immediately Allah came to claim my name. The revelation began. And the way they know it, the Prophet Muhammad goes into a, a, almost like a trance. In the cold of a night, he will start to sweat. They knew it was coming. They quickly put a pillow on the floor because they know he needs, to be, he needs to lay down. Because the weight of the revelation is so strong. In some hadith it says he was on a camel and Jibreel came and the revelation came. When the revelation came, the camel collapsed of the weight of the revelation. In another hadith, a sahabi was saying, the Prophet was next to me. You know how you cross your legs and you cross over each other, you know, you sit next to each other in a masjid and you're squashed. He said his leg was overlapping my knee. The moment revelation came, he goes, my knee was all, my leg was going to be snapped in half. I had to pull my leg out of underneath from his because of the weight and the pressure. So the, she said immediately the Prophet Muhammad went into a trance, started to sweat. One of the narrations the Prophet said, is that when do I get revelation? It's like big bells being ringing. It's really hard on us for the prophets when they receive revelation. Very difficult. And they put the pillow underneath him while he was getting this revelation. The moment he responded back, he said, Rejoice to Allah. Aisha, Allah has cleared your name. He has made it clear that you were not involved in this. And so here, Hazrat Aisha was overwhelmed by the fact that Allah SWT came down to clear her name. Alongside in that ayah of the Quran, it came down for those people who spread these rumors that there should be punishment for them. So it was ordered upon those people that 80 lashes will be applied to them. Hamna, Mr. Samda Khazraj, Abdullah bin Abay. Right? This, this was the punishment that was ordained on them. So you see from this event, Prophet Muhammad even as a prophet, he has to go through the anguish and the pain before Allah reveals the ayahs to clear people's name. But in that, he has to behave in accordance 
to the way Allah expects him to. This is why we say that he is the greatest man that ever stepped on this earth. You know why? Because if he was guided every second, put your foot here, say this, think this, then the game's too easy. Allah doesn't do that with Prophet Muhammad Look at the pattern. What happens is the Prophet Muhammad is taught and guided. He's nurtured. Then an event happens. Then from what he has been taught, the way he's been taught, like the way we teach our kids, right? The way we teach, you know, the, the people that are underneath us who are in our care. We teach them and we expect them to do the right thing. But that doesn't mean that pain and anguish will not face them. Because Allah hasn't revealed anything to clear. Then Allah puts you through that and the Prophet Muhammad didn't make an accusation. He just simply said to Hazrat Aisha, if you've done this, to save yourself from the day of judgment. There's a lesson to all of us. If we've committed this kind of haram, keep repenting to Allah. Because many people, when they commit haram, they turn away from Allah, not because they don't want forgiveness. They think it's hopeless. It's pointless. Why would Allah forgive me when I do it every single day? I miss my salah every single day. I go out there and I commit haram every single day. I disobedient to my parents. Nothing is done until it's done. So he's saying to his wife, Allah loves those who repent to him. He will accept the believer's repentance. That's what he does. So here you begin to see how the Prophet Muhammad always makes the right choices. It's not about all full revelation. Revelation comes afterwards to clear, to direct and give indication. And that's what's important about this. So how is that any different to us? Well, in that sense, we're not prophets, but we've been nurtured by the Qur'an. Qur'an tells us how to behave, how to look, how to talk, how to deal with people, how to love our parents, how to deal with our wives, how to deal with our children, how to deal with our work colleagues. It tells us everything. It is there. So once it's been given, then there's no excuse. And that's how we're supposed to build ourselves up. The second part of the, the, this, this whole story is, are the rumours. Is that we've got to be very careful how we spread the rumours, right? You don't spread the rumours to damage uh, someone's reputation. You don't. Let it be. Especially, and especially when it comes to our sisters. Because our sisters, in the life of us, they're put on a pedestal. You understand? We almost, we don't worship them, but we treat them with such high, our mothers, our wives, our daughters, everyone else's daughters, everyone's mothers. We give them so much love and respect. We put them, because that was something that never happened at the time when Islam came around. The Persians, the Romans, and the Arabs treated them like dirt. They had no rights. They had nothing. So people who attack the Muslims and say, you, you oppress your women. Are you for real? We liberated them. We put them in such a high position that we give them that level of respect. And then to make rumours against them, this is a very serious crime. This is a very serious crime. You have to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? You, unless you have... And what I loved about this story was the Prophet said what? He says, I know nothing bad about these people. If you know nothing, then why is your status quo automatically they've done something bad? Your status quo should have been, there are good people I have no reason to believe. Remember a simple rule in life. In Sharia, Allah says that the definitive will always override the doubt. What you know 
will always override what you don't know or what you think. If you know someone is good and you've never seen him drink and somebody turns around and says he's drunk, then automatically your status should be, no, he doesn't drink because we've never known him to drink. But we do the opposite. And that's where the danger comes.